Welcome to the Brendan Swan Podcast. We're back for part two of Amazon Original Movies, so the best of the Amazon Original Movies. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what are your thoughts on the first one? We, we basically did an experiment here where we were trying to hype up a bunch of movies that got little to no press. Some of these have gotten some press, but um, but to do so without spoiling them. How do, how do you feel about that? Uh, it was actually very rewarding this week because I've had several different people, I think you've had the same thing, where they have contacted us and said, hey, I reached out or I, I went and watched this movie. And it was actually really good. I never would have watched it. Yeah, so I, I felt the same way. I, I, I said this on, on one of my posts the other day, um, that it is, it's always humbling me that people would bother to listen to the podcast, mm-hmm. but it's so much greater a compliment that they would pick out one of these movies and watch them. Yeah, uh, There was a post someone shared of them listening in their car, and they posted their dashboard and said the Brennan Swan podcast on the, it was just so cool. It's kind of fun. Yeah. It is kind of fun. So I had this realization uh, as I was preparing for this week, and I don't know if this was subconscious for me, but I, I kind of trimmed this list. So some of the movies that we're going to mm-hmm. go over today, um, if, if I was thinking in the same terms now that I was when I did last week's episode, I might have made a, a couple of different selections. What I realized that I was doing is I was doing my best to balance these movies out by interspersing into the, this list um, some movies that had a little more lightness. Because for whatever reason, some of these just great movies happen to be intense and dark mm-hmm. and sad. So I found myself interjecting certain movies that probably maybe didn't warrant inclusion in the list just to kind of balance it out because there were so many great movies, albeit, mm-hmm. that were intense and, and heavy. But that's the thing, just, just to interject movies that we don't feel the same way about in order to make that list a little less dark. Well, I'm saying that as a precursor for this episode because uh, I've, I've nixed that. And mm-hmm. the six movies that we're going to do today are almost exclusively dark. Yeah. But they happen to be among the best movies available on, at least on this platform. Mm-hmm. So uh, brace yourselves. If you thought it was uh, dark last week, we are, uh, we're going into the shadows now. Um, uh, but that's okay. Honestly, these movies are great in their own merit. And they, const- they, they happen to be on the darker end of things mm-hmm. and, and a little bit more tragic and sad. But they tell meaningful stories, and I'm interested in meaningful stories, whether they happen to be happy or sad. Yeah. And uh, that just happens to be the case today. Yeah, I'm wondering why that particularly seems to be a, a trend. Maybe it's just the, the algorithm telling us the movies that we've liked and recommending more like it. But Amazon, some of the prime originals, some of the ones that I've thought are the best on there, because I've watched more than that we were just talking mm. about. And continually, one time after time, my favorite ones are the darker ones. The ones that have the uh, emotional impact. Do you think there's a, a human reason there that, um, I, I mean, you sort of said it in that sentence that it's, that it's a, a, I think it makes things, makes you feel things you wouldn't normally feel in day-to-day life. And that's refreshing. So it's like the extremes of the human condition. Like we're, we're, we're pushing the limits, you know, movies that kind of paddle around in the, the, the shallow side are unlikely to have that effect on a person. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, it's like easy listening music versus a sad song. Yeah, I, yeah, something like that. You know, they're, 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 both can be good, but every once in a while, you just need to sit in your own angst for a little bit and yeah. enjoy some human emotion. And some of these movies aren't sad, per se, as they are just, dark, you know, yeah. dark or tragic. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them are just intense, uh, but not a lot of lightness here on this list today. Uh, but with that little preamble, I, I'm ready to jump into it. Let's do it. Uh, first up is Sound of Metal, starting, starring Riz Ahmed, who yeah. uh, I like quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what were your thoughts on this movie? Um, th- this movie, I thought, did something very boldly. The, the movie, The Sound of Metal, this is 
not too much of a spoiler, is about a guy who's coping with the fact that he's going deaf or has gone deaf and he's a musician. And uh, the filmmakers decided to try to try their best to put us in that situation. We don't know what it's like to actually be deaf, but they did audio tricks throughout the movie. They, they, they made it fuzzy in some spots, cut it out completely in others to kind of give the, the audience a taste of what it might be like to be deaf. And I thought it was a really interesting way. I think they did it very, uh, uh, a way that was, uh, got the point across, but was not so jarring that you're just like, man, I'm so confused at what's going on during the movie. I actually thought it gave us great insight into the deaf community because mm-hmm. as I was watching some of these scenes, there were se- several scenes that were just um, saturated in silence where there's a group of people in, in this uh, community of deaf people communicating with their hands or gesturing and the, the sound behind it is there's no music, there's nothing in the room, there's subtle little... Like the rustling little, of their fingers. Yeah, little yeah. movements. But it's, it's almost entirely silent. Mouths are moving, hands are moving, everybody's gesticulating, but there is, there's no sound. And it, you kind of get to observe and witness through Riz Ahmed's eyes, uh, I, I can't recall his character name off the top of my head, um, what it would be like to be deaf. And for him, he's coming into it the same way that you and I would. He had hearing. Mm-hmm. He knows what it's like to be a part of the full capacity of the sensory world. And now he's lost one of his senses and he's trying to adapt. Mm-hmm. So we're kind of getting dragged into that through the filmmaking process, which I... Adored. I thought it was a really cool experience. And on top of the fact that his career is, he's a musician. Yeah. So, so this was heartbreaking yeah, for him. Losing his hearing, and it's incredibly frustrating for him. And the, 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 the movie is ostensibly about the, the journey he takes to dealing with his new handicap, his new uh, disability. Yeah. Um, I thought the acting, Riz Ahmed's acting was beautiful throughout it. The, there are a couple of scenes when he's with his girlfriend in the parking lot that stood out to me. Um, a couple of the scenes of, I don't even want to say dialogue, but uh, where he's with the, the mentor of the uh, the Deaf Institute that he's right. at. Character played, uh, name is Joe. Joe. Character's Joe, yeah. yeah. Um, honestly, I'm, I'm, I, I kind of want to watch a breakdown of, or a, a, like commentary on it to see how different this was a filming experience for actors who you're no longer have these auditory cues and you're trying to speak without speaking. Yeah. And just, I think it just would present a myriad of challenges that kudos to the, the filmmakers for getting through. I thought there was an interesting parallel between this movie and one of the ones we covered last week with don't worry, he won't get far on foot mm-hmm. because this deaf community that uh, Ruben stone, which is Rizamed's character ends up joining happens to also be a kind of a narcotics anonymous group as well. Mm-hmm. So uh, Joe's character kind of parallels Jonah Hill's character from Don't Worry, He Won't Get Far on Foot. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, in, a, in a weird way. He's this very paternal figure who uh, exercises control. And, and in this community, one thing that's very important is he's trying to teach all of his people that this is, this is not something you're trying to necessarily overcome. This is something you're trying to learn to live with. Yeah. And Ruben can't handle that. He can't handle the idea that he is, his career uh, as a, a, a rock star is basically coming to an end. And he's doing everything he can to try to get cochlear implants so he can mm-hmm. restore his hearing, so he can go back to being business as usual. And Joe, at some point during the movie, has to inform Ruben, hey, I can't have you here. That's corrosive to this group of people that I'm trying to make them believe that they are perfectly okay yeah. right now. There's nothing wrong with being deaf yeah. in, in your destroying that message and it's so it's just such an impactful scene where joe playing kind of the role of the father who is who's essentially casting out his own son in favor of protecting the rest of his children that's that's kind of the role that joe plays is 
Hey, Ruben, I love you and I want what's best for you and I hope that you figure this out, but I can't have you destroying what's precious to me. Yeah. Um, the, the actress who played the teacher, the, the school teacher. I'm glad you brought her up. She was one of my favorites. Yeah. She's, um, I just saw her. I'm, it's skip. It's blank her name is Lauren Ridloff. She yeah. plays the teacher uh, of the deaf she, children's so class. She's, she's actually, Diane. she's actually deaf. I assumed that. I yeah. didn't know that for sure, but I assumed that she was. Um, the only reason I know that is because I just saw a clip. It was maybe the trailer for a movie or something like that. And she was signing in the other movie. Uh, so I was like, oh, so I looked her up and it turns out she actually is deaf. So She she um, was responsible for one of my favorite scenes in the movie. There's this scene when uh, Ruben, as a, as a part of his, his um, treatment, is going into this classroom and interacting with the community of deaf children. And she is the teacher in this class. And she's asking him to sign his name for the children to learn his name. And he doesn't know sign language at this point. So uh, she kind of calmly and patiently points towards the board and, and hands him a Sharpie. And he's getting frustrated because he's obviously angry that this has happened to him. That he's, he's, he's in a room full of first graders or second yeah. graders. Um, but she just communicated this beautiful patience in her, in her mannerisms that... That it was okay. She she was neutralizing him. She was calming him down. And I don't want to say too much about it because I'd actually like for people to see the film. But yeah. um, her character was one of just the absolute bright spots of the film. Mm-hmm. I, I, I again, I don't want to. I don't want to. It's it's such a tricky balance here. I, I I you know again with trying to avoid spoilers, but also encouraging people to go go see the film. Um, he's 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 in this uh, house like a, a home for kind of a halfway home. Yeah. Yeah. And. So one of the friends that he makes in particular, the one who ends up getting the tattoo. Oh yeah, I, I like their friendship yeah. and uh, their. She's very cool. Yeah. Uh, I just again, I don't want to spoil spoil too much about the characters, but. Um. So one thing I did want to express uh, on behalf of storytelling that I thought they did a really good job with is so Ruben is grappling with this this thing that's been put upon him that he's losing his, losing his hearing and it is tempting him to uh, break his streak as far as. Uh, narcotics Mm -hmm. he's he's now having temptation to take drugs again Mm -hmm. and uh he's here at this halfway home and they have responsibilities that they give to everybody and joe recognizes that ruben is constantly trying to be busy doing things like he's trying to fix the roof or you know whatever it is he's not allowed to have his phone he's not allowed to communicate with the outside world and joe is very very sagely recognizes that ruben is in danger and he tells him your responsibility your chore to contribute to this community is that every day at 5 a.m i want you to go into this room completely by yourself, sit down and write. And it's an important lesson in the film. I don't want to say too much about it because I don't want to spoil what I do think is actually a very beautiful ending. But he wants Ruben to understand that there, you can find contentment and solitude and happiness and peace in aloneness. Mm-hmm. Just being by yourself and being able to sit in silence. Yep. Um, so uh, I think that's probably enough to set yeah. up the film. Is What else would you say is worth highlighting? Uh, I would say the ending, again, without without spoiling it, the ending is is very beautiful and yeah. makes definitely makes the movie worth the watch. But you know, hard hard to tell you what happens and not spoil it. Well, yeah, so. yeah, it is it is a good movie. the The love relationship between Riz Ahmed and his um, his fiance Lou is is one of the charms of the film. Um, it's a very strained relationship. They both found each other in a position of brokenness, and they found redemption and safety in each other. Mm-hmm. And when when Ruben loses his hearing, that threatens everything, mm-hmm. and he's he's quite afraid of the alternative of yeah. of having a life without his, Lou. His fiance is his. He's the drummer. She's the singer. Yeah, it's so like that's this is not just. He thinks he's going to lose his whole world. Yeah. Yep. Uh, what's up next? We are 
Uh, next one, a movie that I actually liked quite a bit, One Night in Miami. So, One Night in Miami is a fictitious story about uh, four real, uh, authentic historical characters who uh, spend a night together. Mm-hmm. Uh, the four characters are... It's uh, Cassius Clay, from, mm-hmm. you know, as before he converted. Um, so his name was still Cassius Clay. Uh, Jimmy... Uh, sorry, Malcolm X, Jimmy Brown. And, Jim Brown, yeah. Uh, the football player was... Jim Brown's the football player. So oh, sorry. Sam Cook. Sam is Cook. Oh, yeah, <laughs> Sam Cook. Yeah, so... Uh, this is, this is a really cool story. So as you mentioned, it is Cassius Clay, not Muhammad Ali. This, mm-hmm. as the story goes, is uh, the night that he becomes the heavyweight world champion when he, mm-hmm. he beats, is it, it's Lister. Lip, lip, uh, it's Dean Lister, I think. Not no, Lip, it's not no, Dean. No, it's uh, Lipt, Lipton. No, man, you got Dean Lister in him. Sorry, Dean yeah. Lister's an actual fighter. It's uh, whatever. Anyway, um, it's the night so it's, that it's, it's, it's that night, but the story is a fictitious story. Correct. Yeah. Correct. So what I like about this, this, this to me reminds some. There, I can't think of another movie that's done this, but it does happen from time to time. This is what I would call an artistic consolidation. You have a, a period of of prolific individuals who all all of these these individuals had an effect on their community uh, during their during their time. And this is basically just taking all of them. I, I like to imagine this as if I was a person. Let's say I was growing up at the time when all these guys were um, in their primes and, and doing what they were doing, making their contributions to the world. If I was a young person, these would be my primary influences. These would be people who I'd be aware of. And they would all, to some extent, shape us in the same way that culture shapes each and every one of us. Mm-hmm. So to create a story that drags them all into a single scene, to me, is not in any way a dishonest story. No, it's, no, no. It's, a, it's yeah. a very clever way to say, hey, these are the cultural forces that are at work inside the society. And, uh, you know, the, they're, 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 they're the influences of their time. Yes. And these are four of the figureheads for black America in the, this would be the 60s. Yeah, this yeah. would be the 60s. Um, so it's a fictitious storytelling of a night in Miami after Cassius Clay has won the championship. Mm-hmm. And this four, these, these four men, this, this group of prolific black men in the 60s, um, are spending a night together in a hotel talking about their responsibility to their community. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Malcolm, Malcolm X kind of plays the ringleader here. And he is trying to edge along uh, Cassius Clay towards... Uh, this is, this is really the transitional moment where he, he is preparing to align himself with the Nation of Islam and become Muhammad Ali. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's also chastising Sam Cooke and Jim Brown for their need to be more involved and to be more, particularly particularly Sam Cooke. Mm-hmm. He has a lot to say about Sam Cooke. I, I thought some of the best scenes were the, the dialogue between Sam Cooke's character and Malcolm X. I absolutely character. agree. Yeah. Um, the, and, uh, you know, neither of us were alive during the, 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 the civil move, the um, civil liberties, civil, rights, whole, civil rights movement. Yep. Um, you know, I was born in 1990. So everything I'd ever heard about any stories is secondhand stuff I've written, stuff people have said. And it was nice just to, to see a story get told where it's just these guys and they're they're dissecting a, an argument. But even though they're on a particular side, they're still showing the nuance of each of their own individual opinions. Yeah. Like uh, Sam Cooke and Malcolm X do not agree on the way that this the movement should be handled mm-hmm. or that there are responsibilities to the movement. Um, also, did you recognize Sam Cooke? 
I do. I was just about to bring it up. Oh, okay, gotcha. Yeah. I saw it, and I, I, dude, I was trying to figure it out. I was like, I no. know I've seen this guy. And that looked like it was him really singing. I was like, this guy's... Yeah, yeah, that, no. this is This is him. And then I, then it clicked for me. He's... Aaron, Leslie, yeah. Leslie Odom Jr., who plays... Um, Aaron Burr. Aaron Burr in Hamilton. Mm-hmm. I, at some point, I think I do want to do a podcast on musicals, so I'll save a little bit uh, for that. But um, for those who have not seen Hamilton, if you have Disney+, Plus. Well, first of all, if you're in an area right now where you can go to the go to the theater and watch live performances, go see Hamilton. That that honestly, I had this overwhelming experience when I watched that. I could not fathom and believe that a that a piece of art of that magnitude exists. That is easily one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. I, I really enjoyed Hamilton. Lin Manuel Miranda, thank you so much for the gift that you gave to the world. That is a beautiful play. Yeah. Um so for those who have Disney Plus, they actually did a um, video version of Hamilton starring Leslie Odom Jr. as Aaron Burr opposite Lin-Manuel Miranda as Alexander Hamilton. And uh, it's, if you like musicals, you'll love it. If you don't care for musicals, I think you'll still like it. Yeah. It's, it's actually very, very, a very well told story and it's beautifully choreographed and the music is excellent. Yes, I agree. Um, so I'm assuming that it was also him singing in this movie because there's several songs that he, several parts where he's singing. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, it was it was some pretty cool performances. He has a uh, at the, towards the end he sings another song. That's Ooh, kind of yeah. I I'm do not, want to talk about that. Yeah, I'm just gonna say it, it's you. Okay, go ahead and take. Over I, I don't that. think that's much of a spoiler. Um, I'm just gonna say he. It's like the kind of the culmination and the the cherry on top of the the movie because yeah. So people without seeing the movie won't be able to put together exactly the what that means. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I want to ask you a question. If somebody would ask you, what is your favorite song? Would you be able to answer that question? Uh, I would. You would? I think so. Interesting. I, I think I know what your answer might be. Would it be Bohemian? No. It wouldn't. Okay, no. what's your favorite? Uh, Into the West. It's the, the song that plays at the end of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. No way. Yeah. That's your favorite That's one? That's my favorite song. Um, Specifically, uh, Peter Hollins is a guy. He does a lot of acapella stuff. So he sings the acapella and he sings several different parts. And then he, you know, edits them together. Okay, and interesting. It's, it's, That's your favorite song. It's so, it's so beautiful. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. I think um, so, yeah. The reason I say that is, if I had to pick a favorite song, I believe I would choose Sam Cooke, A Change Is Gonna Come. That, mm-hmm. that might be the most haunting and beautiful ballad that I've ever heard. I, the first time I ever heard the song was, it was being covered. I, I, for a couple of seasons, I watched American Idol. And one of the seasons I watched was the one where Adam Lambert was one of the main contestants on the show. And he sang this song, and that was my introduction to the song. And sometime after that, I heard Sam Cooke's version of it. Um, but I was just blown away by, by that song. Yeah. So this, this movie kind of culminates with one of Sam Cooke's artistic um, contributions, uh, particularly to... So one of the focal points of the movie is, is Malcolm X is trying to prod his, his, his fellow um, men inside the black community to be the kind of men that everybody could aspire towards. And he's very critical of Sam Cooke for being just this kind of commercial enterprise that is all about self-interest. And he's encouraging him to strike out and to do things that are more meaningful for his community. But to to that point, I like that Sam Cooke quickly countered that and and gave several reasons why he actually is contributing. And he says, tell me how many tell me how many black people you did what I did for like, you know. Given these, I'm not going to give the spoilers away. You might be right about that, but what I what I actually like is that his and, and again, this is a fictitious story, so mm-hmm. this may or may not be true. But a change is going to come. Seems to be, at least as the story goes in the movie, 
a consequence of maybe that conversation. This is a piece of art that very clearly draws a line and, and shows where he stands mm-hmm. um, and, and stands in shoulder to shoulder with he and all of his community. It's not, it's not what he may be known for. It's just the smooth, beautiful music that is romantic and light and that everybody listens to. This, this, is, this is something else. This is something that is specifically relevant for his community. Mm-hmm. Um, so the movie sort of draws a comparison or draws, draws the, a correlation between Malcolm X and, and his chastisement of Sam Cooke and the production of this song. Would you, would you say that that's a fair characterization? Uh, yeah. Well, one of the things that is, is kind of a neat, again, this being a fictitious story, is when he's talking, when uh, Jim Brown is talking to Cooke, he says, Cooke tells him, like, I've been, I've been working on the song. I haven't showed it to anyone. Do you want to hear it? And at this point... Malcolm and Cassius Clay are not there, so mm-hmm. it's only those two. And we don't get to hear it as the audience right. at that time. But later I'm so on, glad we do get to hear it. Yeah, we, we do hear it at the end of the movie. And to me, that's kind of proof that this, the conversation with Muhammad, uh, not Muhammad, uh, Malcolm X is not necessarily, it's more of a revelation than a, a, a change in course. Yeah. It's, I, I was headed this direction all along type of thing. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's fair. In fact, one of the things I really liked about the movie is uh, I really liked the the way that Cassius Clay's character sort of played. He was he was sort of the the object that was in the middle that was being pulled by both sides. He, he was he, almost like the naive. He was child, the young. He was the kid, and he was he was trying to pick a path. Yeah. So Sam Cooke is kind of chastising in turn Malcolm X for taking advantage of this this young man mm-hmm. who obviously was a bit like you said naive or or just. Just young. And, like, and with fair criticism because, yeah. you know, part of the reason, according to the story, that Malcolm X was so heavily trying to get Cassius to become part of the Nation of Islam is to mitigate his plan to leave it. Like, he right. thinks if he, if he can get Cassius Clay into the Nation of Islam and he leaves it, maybe there won't be... So Sam Cooke is, is prodding him and suggesting that his motives may not be entirely selfless. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, the tension between those two characters really is the the core of the film. Yeah, but um, the, I was gonna like I liked the movie those those two particularly their dialogue their performance mm-hmm. Malcolm X and uh, Sam Cooke was, was by far what I liked the most about it. it was, same, same here. Same and here. and you know a chance to just sit down in quiet and listen to again not like I said we weren't we weren't alive during this movement but un- undoubtedly you've heard good and bad about. All kinds of the uh, all kinds of leaders of the civil rights movement back mm-hmm. in the day, from throughout your childhood and adulthood, right. we've heard stories, and it's nice to just like, all right, you know what? I know this is a fictitious story, but let's just explore another side or explore something we're not familiar with. And hearing what could have been their their internal dialogues, these guys who who existed back then and yeah. were very influential. Again, we don't know if they actually ever had conversations. I don't right. know the nature of their friendships in real life, um, but. Uh, as as a story, just telling this thing, this this thing that could have happened, it's there's nothing unreal about it. I think it was a beautiful little little story, and it was directed by uh, Regina King. I noticed oh, that yeah? at the end. Yeah, oh, that's cool. Yeah. Um, what I like about it is you could take in each of these individuals' bodies of work and form an idea of what those people would be like. And this is basically an artistic expression exactly. to say, what would it be like if they were in the same room? Yep. And that's that's a lot of fun. Like I yeah. love that as a storytelling technique. It doesn't. It's not so important that it is true in the same sense of true. But it's like also, it's these not are a not. Lie. They're not factual because this factually mm-hmm. did not happen. However, this you can still have a very meaningful story that's not factual, 
And yeah. that's what this is. It's an attempt to, to ask the question, what would have happened if Sam Cooke, Jim Brown, uh, Cassius Clay, and Malcolm X were all in the same room for a night? And that's the movie. Mm-hmm. One, one Night in Miami, available on Amazon Prime. Check it out if you're interested. It's, it's a really good movie. Yeah. I, I particularly like the scene that, ha- that took place on the roof. Um, they're in the little. They're in the oh, hotel, yeah. and uh, the reason that they're in this hotel is because the fight was on Miami Beach on a, an island, apparently. Mm-hmm. And per the the Jim Crow laws of that era, Cassius Clay wasn't even allowed to stay there. He had to leave the area and go stay in another area. So they're having this this after party for him winning the world championship. Just these four guys in this yeah. little um, rundown hotel. They end up going to the roof of the ho- the motel and having a great conversation, great scene of dialogue, but. Um, yeah, overall, great movie, and it's worth a watch. It's definitely higher up on my list of these. So we haven't talked about today as far as the must watch or anything. Do Maybe we at need... the end? Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah let's hold off. Uh, next up, beautiful boy. Oh man! Again, I've, I've I've praised Timothy Chalamet on this before. I think I know I've told you this, but he's this might be the best performance uh, of his. I, I think w- we will eventually say it's Daniel Day Lewis and Timothy Chalamet. Those two are so you and I, without getting too far into the specifics here, but you and I have have um, some experience with dealing with addicts, and mm-hmm. and we know what they look like. And I wonder whether or not people watching this film would be able to appreciate the work that Timothy Chalamet does because he plays the addict so well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the the story is Timothy Chalamet is, is a young man and uh, a teenager and beautiful boy. He's the boy, and his dad is Steve Carell. And it's the story of him. It, it time hops back and forth to younger days and older days, but he's going through addiction to drugs and crystal meth in particular. Yeah. And Steve Carell is trying to, the movie is more about Steve Carell actually trying to rent rescue his son mm-hmm. from drugs. And there's plenty of scenes that are just tragic in there. And, uh, you know, Steve Carell, I think people, t- that's what she said. Oh, he's on the office. The dude can act. Yeah. And especially in some of his dramatic roles where he's not being funny, are his best roles or my favorite roles of his. You know, I always love Michael Scott, but um, like this and, and Flag of Our Fathers and or Last Flag Flying. Last rather. Flag Flying, yeah. Um, the the one where he was a, in the, the the real estate bubble with Christian Bale, Steve Carell. Oh, um, the Big Short. Big Short, yeah. Uh, you know, there's the, he's not pl- playing any comedic roles in these movies, but they're awesome performances. And in this one. No different. There was one scene that I that stuck out to me as pretty tragic and kind of a, a good telling of, of where Steve Carell was at. Several times of seeing his son relapse, several times of going bending over backwards to try to help him, and he works for uh, I think a newspaper company. He's or, a freelance he's, writer. He's a writer, and he ends up using some of his resources as a writer to to get with a consultant who talks about what drugs do and why people are addicts and he's you know he's like just like here i'm not i'm here for my son i'm not here to learn about writing for this article i'm here to learn because my son's going through this and it leads to him going and buying drugs and trying it himself because he kind of wants to put himself in his son's shoes and the way that plays out is just (laughs) again i don't want to spoil the movie but that that scene really stuck out to me as a very well-written desperate attempt to try to understand something that he doesn't understand. One thing I really like about the movie is that they sort of explore conceptually what it would be like to try to win back somebody who's, who's been taken over by drugs. If you have any familiarity with people who have addictions, 
to some extent, you you lose their humanity in the context of this thing. They they cease to be a person. You are almost contending with the drug and the effect it has on the person now, mm-hmm. and, and less less of the actual person. And you can see you can see a desperate father who loves his son. Who one of the things that really strikes me about this film is that Steve Carell plays this doting, loving father who just genuinely cares for his son, and sometimes that love for his son gets in the way of doing potentially what's best for his son. And this is one of the things that I just find to be remarkably tragic about life is that sometimes our own emotions prevent us from making good decisions as it pertains to people we're trying to help. Uh, once upon a time, I, I dealt with somebody who was dealing with an addiction and tried to figure out for myself how I could help. And I realized that it was so difficult for me to separate my own feelings and and, and the injustices that were being happening, you know, that, that were happening against me and to try to actually help a person. Um, and, and I kind of watched that out, play out on screen here is there's, there's one point where Steve Carell chastises Timothy Chalamet and says, have you considered the effect that this has on us? Have, have you thought at all about how much it's hard, how hard it is for me? Have you considered that you're throwing away your future, this beautiful life that we've worked to, to foster and to cultivate, cultivate for you? And all these things, unfortunately to an addict, they're reinforcing this alienation and there's one particular moment where Steve, Steve Carell's character is a chef, I think is his name, um, is rifling through his son's journal, and he's seeing some of the things that his son uh, has written. Mm-hmm. And there was this particular quote, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to paraphrase because I, I don't know that I could capture it perfectly, but he says something to the effect of, I'm so ashamed of the things I do when I take drugs that I continue to take them to avoid dealing with the shame. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's a humbling reminder that when you're dealing with somebody with something like this, as, and I, I'm, I say this with no judgment whatsoever because I've, I've tried to deal with it myself and it's not, it's not easy to manage. But if you can't separate your own emotions, there's a good probability that what you may try to do will make things worse. Yeah. It's catch-22 because your love for that person is probably what's driving you to help. And them. that's why I say that it's tragic yeah. because you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. There, mm-hmm. and, and to some extent, that's what the movie is about is Steve Carell coming to the realization that I can't help him. Yeah. This mm-hmm. this is this is one of those movies where sometimes you come into a movie and you are in the aftermath of a tragedy. We're going to get to Manchester by the Sea a little bit later and that's one of those movies where tragedy is already taking place and now you're looking at the people who are the consequence of tragedy. Mm-hmm. But this one is tragedy itself. We are watching drug drug use just tear this life apart and we're watching the effect it has on the people close to him uh, as they try to cope with this. Mm-hmm. And at no point does it ever get to be very pretty. No, it doesn't. This one is just tragedy through and through. And it, the, one of the things that also got me was um, Steve Carell is divorced and has remarried in the movie and has, I think, two children with mm-hmm. his new wife. Um, Timothy Chalamet's character, his real mom, and Steve Carell, they still talk. Uh, they, they still have, they're not married anymore. But there's a driving split between that Timothy Chalamet's drug use is, is causing this driving rift between all of them. And kind of one of the moments was like you said, where, where Steve Carell realized that he couldn't help him. He, mm-hmm. There's nothing he could do. And it was kind of the drawing line was he wasn't going to let this destroy what he had now right. like with his, his, his new wife and his kids. That was more, that was more important to him or not more important, but he loved yeah. that enough. And he re- the realization that you can't help someone who doesn't want to help themselves or is unwilling to help themselves. It reminds me a little bit of what we just talked about with Sound of Metal, is that Joe was protecting the group against mm-hmm. one peop- one person inside the group. And it's not because he didn't love that person. It's because at some point he had to make the difficult decision 
how do I preserve what I have? You're danger to the rest of us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's the essence of actual tragedy is that there is no perfect choice. This, you know, often when we're children, we're, we're exposed to things as if it is as binary as good and evil, that it's a simple choice between the two that you always choose good and evil. But life so often is exceedingly gray and we are, we are forced to choose. You know, I was taught once upon a time that the lesser of two evils is actually good. And, uh, I've just become comfortable with the fact that that is not actually the case. It is still the lesser of two evils. It's, it's still, just the lesser. Yep. That's it. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, life is not easy. Life is actually pretty, pretty difficult. Um, and uh, I, I like movies that remind us of that because it should imbue us with some humility that, wow. It's not that easy. It's not that easy. Yeah. It's I not that easy. Agree. And that's what this movie is. It's a, it's a journey of discovery for a father as, as he wants to desperately save his son and he can't and uh this i I, my opinion the movie and its ending more so than trying to solve a problem or tell any particular story is just about the peace that they find in this tragic situation yeah and that's what it is and it's if i'm being completely honest it's not a super satisfying ending but it's an ending that but it's real yeah it's a real ending this is uh, they even say it at one point during the film uh, when he's talking to that same clinician you you mentioned where he's he's trying to understand what it would be like to take crystal meth and he talks to this clinician and he says i've got to be honest with you the success rate of of people being redeemed from these circumstances is low it's less than 10 percent less than 10 percent of people who are ever whoever try this drug ever become functional human beings again yeah so during the movie, you're sort of being set up for the eventuality that this is not going to end well. Mm-hmm. And that's one thing that's worth noting about life is uh, happy endings are, are great, but unhappy endings are great too. Yeah. I mean, there, there's a lot to be learned from tragedy. I don't know if I would consider this, an, I, I don't know if I would characterize it as an unhappy ending, but I would definitely say it's, it's tragic. Not a, it's, not an unha- it's not a happy yeah. ending. It's for sure not a happy ending. Yeah. But. Uh, I do want to needle in a little bit more on Timothy Chalamet's performance because I thought that, that was pretty exceptional. And I, I don't know, again, this might just be me underestimating uh, the audience at large, but um, he did some very subtle things that addicts do relentlessly. They, uh, they're very jittery. They're, very, they, uh, they're, they're provoked to anger very quickly. They will constantly try to turn things on you as if it's your fault, that you're the one being, that's being unreasonable. Yep. And uh, Chalamet really channeled that just so, so often through the film where I, I have, if you've ever seen an addict and you've ever dealt with them in any emotional circumstances, uh, that's what it looks like. Mm-hmm. Uh, he really, really delivered a great performance. Um, manipulation, uh, inconsistency. Yeah. Addicts have this way of, of lying to you, but telling you a lie that no reasonable person would ever believe, but they have conned themselves into believing that they're being entirely reasonable. Mm-hmm. And there were several times in the film where Timothy Chalamet's character is trying to explain something and he's just using lyrics that are just unfamiliar to a normal sound mind. Yeah. Like no one would say this in, in their sound mind, but they say it with such bravado and conviction. And you, you think, they, they think, then they try to project onto you that you're crazy because you don't believe them. Yeah. Like, how could you not believe me? But the crazy thing is they actually do believe themselves. They do believe it. Mm-hmm. Their brains have been fried. Yeah. And uh, so... His performance, I thought, really was the shining spot of the movie. Um, yeah. But it's but it's not a happy film. Definitely not. It's one of those ones have have some Kleenex near you. Yeah, and brace yourself. Yeah. Um, it's it's worth the ride. It's uh it's something that will you'll learn from, and 
enjoy in a strange way. Like, yeah, I, there's oh, there's there's something to be said about tragic films and and what they what they have the capacity to do. Enjoyment seems like a strange word because it's it's. Uh, I mean, there's a reason why tragedies as stories have been told for forever. So because they're good. Yeah, they can be good. Well, there's there's a lot of different kinds of tragedies. There's tragedies where the hero sacrifices himself, and and we can walk away from that feeling very good about it because there's something selfless that took place. This is not that. This is this is tragedy itself. This is just bad things happening. Mm. Hey, well, this is tragedy without the the the, the bright, bright spot. Right. Yeah. It's so. just tragedy. Yeah. Next up is uh, blow the man down. So I'm curious. What, you, what your thoughts are, because this one made the list very late. Um, mm-hmm. I, I saw this less than a month ago for the first time, but I just, I dug it. I really liked this movie. I liked it. Uh, there was, the, the first scene that comes on is kind of just the, there's a bunch of fishermen singing, uh-huh. blow the man down. And I remember thinking, what am I getting into here? Yeah. <laughs> I have, because I literally, I knew the title of the movie and that's all I knew. That is the only thing I knew about this. I had no idea what it was going into it. I didn't know any of the actor, actors, so actresses. I'm, I've been advocating for several weeks now on this podcast that that's a great experience in, in my mind. To be able to go into a movie with no prior knowledge no and just experience it organically. Yeah. You don't even know the genre. You just yeah. turn it on and let's see what happens. I find that thrilling, and I hope that people will give that a shot once in a while. We're sort of robbing them of that in this particular circumstance because they'll go into it with at least a little bit of knowledge. There's a lot of other movies on there's there. Plenty that of movies. Talk about there's plenty of movies out there that you can just yeah. just find it and turn it on. But um, one of the things, again, so I went in blind. I didn't know anything that was going to happen. And watching this story get unfold, I started to realize that it was not one story. It was several stories, like five different stories all interwoven together. And... Two, the two main stories are completely, even though they're interwoven, their genesis are completely mutual to each other or exclusive to each other. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's not, I'm trying to think, it's not often that movies do that, but it's totally a random thing. Like you can have a random event that happens to you or a thing that happens to you that pulls you into this other thing that you were never a part of before. And had that not event happened, you never would have known about. But most movies, they like to oh, no, these things have to be connected. It can't just be a random event. And it was kind of refreshing to see, nope, here's just this thing that happens, and it pulls this other character into this whole world, this underworld. Yeah. That, that actually reminds me of what this, the, uh, what this reminded me of when I first saw it. It, uh, it gave me uh, vibes of Ozark from Netflix. Oh, definitely. Because, because it's kind of the same thing. You know, you have Jason Bateman's character and his family who are just normal, average people who get dragged into this world of uh, drug trafficking or, or money laundering for drug traffickers yeah. um, by, well, by virtue of the random circumstance that his business partner was corrupt. Well, he was also corrupt. Marty was also a bad guy at the beginning. But the whole Oz- Ozark move, yes, got dragged into it. Like he was like, his business partner betrayed their boss right. in order to like, hey, that was him, not me. Yeah. But I'll work for you and I'll make this deal and all this other stuff. But it, you know, this what I'm saying in this situation with Blow the Man Down is person just went to a bar and randomly met a person yeah like this was not like so the movie opens on a after the the singing sequence that you're talking about opens on a funeral it's mm-hmm. uh two girls so this takes place in uh somewhere in the northeast uh presumably maine um in a port town and uh they're at a funeral these girls are are mourning the loss of their mother and we're starting to tease out little things about their mother and little things about this town. The town, yeah. And there's this group of old ladies that are so austere and and just 
maternal and it's it's what what that sets up later in the film to me is just so anachronistic and strange but yeah. that's part of the reason that the film is so interesting to me um so i do want to give away a little bit of the premise here the premise is that once upon a time now these these ladies are all senior citizens now you know on the on the cusp of life and their their final days and they are now uh reminiscing with the over the fact that several decades prior they decided that in this little port town as they say it, boys will be boys, and there are going to be uh, our girls will be a victim of these boys if we don't create some sort of alternative. So this little league of of ladies, presumably young women at the time, created a whorehouse in their little port town, and now fast forward to thirty years later, they're all senior citizens dealing with the the guilt associated with what they had set up mm-hmm. decades ago, yeah. um, and one of the girls has just been murdered. One of the the prostitutes. One of the prostitutes. Not one of the old ladies. Yeah. It's it's funny because there's a uh, the scene where one of the prostitutes is walking walking home after working, and it's during the day, and the, all the old ladies are kind of looking at her like, "What is she doing? What is she wearing?" And it's like this is the like group of old ladies that would sit in that one section of church and then go to Golden Corral afterwards. Yeah. You know, like you, that's what you can picture them. Uh, and know. yet, as we come to find out, they were actually the ones who set up the whorehouse, and mm-hmm. now they're dealing with their own guilt because yeah. one of the girls has been killed. Yeah. Um, so now they're they're trying to uh, shut things down, and they have to in order to do so, they have to shut they have to contend with the lady of the house, which is played by Marco Martindale, a character mm-hmm. named Enid. Um, I do want to say uh, Margot Martindale is is perhaps one of my favorite actors actresses out there. Um, she has played famously in a number of roles. She actually was in Uncle Frank. For those who ended up catching that, she is Frank's mother. Um, she had a role in Dexter, which is one of my favorite ever. Was she in Wanted? Was she the boss from Wanted? Ooh, couldn't tell you. I don't know if that's her. I can't name. remember. But I, I like her quite a bit, and she's always been on my radar. I've had a soft spot for her ever since Dexter because she delivered a scene in that show. Um, for those who who have never seen Dexter, it's about a serial killer who realizes in his adolescence that he's becoming a serial killer and his father, who's a detective in Miami, instills into him a particular code, first of all, to avoid killing people who don't deserve to die, but second of all, to avoid being caught. And at some point later on in the series, um, Margot Martindale, I believe, works in the evidence section of the Miami Police Department, and she's unhappy with her life, and she she just wants to end it. Um, So she enlists the help of Dexter to help her end her life. And... That scene, the scene between Dexter and, and her character in that, that show, is, ever since then, I've, I've been mm. watching her, watching her work. And in, this, and in this movie, in Blow the Man Down, she plays a very interesting character. Um, she is the embodiment of, of evil, according to her, her other... You know, it's, it's very convenient to me that this, this, this League of Women decided to create a whorehouse, and now, 30 years later... Well, Margot Martindale's character, Enid, is running the whorehouse. They have the audacity to judge her for, mm-hmm. for being the lady of the house when they all brokered this agreement together and they've all profited and benefited from yeah. it. But again, they're now contending with the guilt of what they've set up and now that it's had consequences that have ultimately seen one of the girls killed. Yeah. And they're, they're the, the kind of premise of the movie is this girl, this girl that was killed, how did this happen? Like, mm-hmm. what's, what's, the th- what's the deal here? And meanwhile... The, the two daughters of that we saw at the funeral. Which, by the way, the uh, their mother, the one who's just passed away, was one of the women mm-hmm. who set up the whorehouse. Yeah. And uh, they're dealing with this other thing, which I won't get into because that's a little bit of a spoiler, but it, it causes them to get pulled into this world where now they're dealing with Enid and these other ladies and even some of the prostitutes, and they're just like, 
they're, they're starting to realize that their mother was a part of this this whole thing. And there's a, obviously the mur- the murder brings the police attention, and there's the old chief of police who's like goes to talk to Enid about it, and she's like, "Oh, hun, how are you doing?" And yeah. she bakes him a pie, I think. And she just well, lets him he, he obviously is is on the books, you know, for this whorehouse because yeah. he walks in and he tells his his young deputy, you know, get ready to walk in here and enjoy this. This is mm-hmm. a great place to be. So you can tell that they've struck an agreement that mm-hmm. the law doesn't interfere with what they're doing here. But yeah, just just picturing yourself as this person who just freshly lost uh, your mother, their mother. Mm-hmm. Um, father's not in the picture, at least not in the movie. I'm not sure if he's mentioned or not, but. Mm. Um, Reasonably, you can assume that he's not 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 around, and now you're de- realizing that your mother was a part of this underworld illegal activity, and to, you're now a part of it because th- this, this event that you randomly happened, yeah, is is pulled you into it, and now you're faced with some huge decisions. And I could, just imagine how being how lost you would feel so in a situation where the, the girls are already angry at their mother because they left her in debt. They left her in debt. They're they're about to lose their house. Um, they they have a business that is not thriving, and they're in this terrible town that nobody nobody would ever choose to live in if they could. Um, unbeknownst to them, they discovered over the course of the film that part of the reason their their mother was in such financial straits is because she was beginning to withdraw from this arrangement, this this one that she helped to construct. Um, so her conscience was going through much the transformation that a lot of the other women were as well. Um, so these, these girls are judging their mother essentially for leaving them in this terrible position. And then they are forcefully pulled into the world that she was trying to get them out of. Um, one, one of my favorite moments in the film, uh, this is a bit of a spoiler, but I think it's really, I'm not going to give the details leading up to when this is said, but it's just an example of really good writing. The girls are, they find themselves in a situation where they have to do something very, very gross and something that a normal person would never do. Um, and one of the girls is panicking. She's freaking out because she just, I, I can't do this. I can't do this. And uh, her sister looks over her and says, coleslaw. She's like, coleslaw? I hate coleslaw. She's like, exactly. But you remember that one time the girl in, in uh, middle school called you a pussy because you couldn't, couldn't eat that disgusting coleslaw and you ate the whole thing? Mm-hmm. We can do this. Yeah. I love, I love little nuggets of writing like that. Yeah. Um, rather than say, you can do this, which is just bland and boring, they said coleslaw, and they told us this little story yeah. of this, the time that the girl overcame and, and ate mm-hmm. something she just found disgusting. Yeah. That's the way you develop a character. Totally. Don't just tell us that yeah. you're, you're able to overcome something. Um, actually, I thought the, the, two, the two daughters performed in this movie great. Like Their, oh, yeah. their performances were awesome. Very real. Uh, I hadn't seen either of them in anything before. I, I looked them up afterwards, and I had not seen many of their, their yeah. projects. I think they're newer yeah. to the scene um, but definitely keep an eye out for more movies they are they were good in them I, I, the, I actually just love the whole idea of this ring of ladies creating a whorehouse yeah. to protect their daughters yeah. like they, they were part of this they're in a port town that, and, which people only come into for you know limited circumstances just basically passer throughs um, but, but the, a lot of the people that are visiting the town are sailors that visit their port and right. like so their, their motivations were if, if we don't do it to these girls it Those guys are going to do our, do it to our, our daughters. Yeah. So, like, it, it's not like evil was was right. uh, motivating any of this. It was compassion for their own kind, but right. or their own their own uh, offspring. But, but Enid eventually found a, found a way to not just 
have this altruistic motivation, but to make it commercially beneficial mm-hmm. for everybody. So she's she's become she's hanging on to it, presumably pretty wealthy because yep. of this arrangement. So while these other women are grappling with their conscience and trying to fix the town to move into a healthier state, Enid is holding on to this because she's found yep. a way to be wealthy. It, it has almost that Breaking Bad vibe to some extent. Mm-hmm. It starts out with this altruistic motive: is I'm gonna I'm gonna take care of my family. Yep. But then the power gets to him. Yeah, the money. Power yeah, money. Yeah, and Enid is kind of a weird parallel for that. Mm-hmm. So if you if you're into suspense and thrillers, this falls into the realm of like we've talked about Ozark. Um, it's it's a fun movie. Yeah. I I really enjoyed it. Uh, what I I wouldn't characterize it as a must watch, but uh, if you're into that kind of thing, I would watch this. Movie. I'd say if you liked Ozarks. Yeah, if you liked Ozarks, you'd probably like the yeah, movie. It's a good movie. Yeah. You know what's ready? What's next? What's next? Manchester by the Sea. Oh man. Uh, I've, I've known about this movie for a long time and I have put off watching it for a long time because I knew it was depressing. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I was right. It was depressing. So I contrasted earlier with uh, Beautiful Boy. Beautiful Boy is a story of a tragedy unfolding. This, this movie is more like the aftermath of a tragedy. Mm-hmm. You don't necessarily know that as you're watching it because um, it sort of unfolds in a nonlinear fashion. But something about this character, whose name is Lee Chandler, played by Casey Affleck, something about his past is terrible. And everybody sort of knows it, except for the audience. And it begins to unfold on screen, and it just gets worse and worse and worse. um, And even when you find out, we're not going to tell you what it is, but even when you find out what the tragedy is, it's it's still not done beating you up. Yeah. Because you're dealing with the aftermath, and... Uh, I, I think one of the most tragic scenes in the movie is the scene where his his ex-wife mm-hmm. is walking her baby with the stroller and they meet up and they have a conversation. His ex-wife is played by Michelle Williams and this this her performance is just fantastic. Just, just incredible. Yeah. For, for those who aren't aware of Michelle Williams and her work, if you have the opportunity, check out the movie My Week with Marilyn where she plays Marilyn Monroe. Have you seen that? No. Oh man! So it's got Eddie Eddie Redmayne in it as well, but but she's the she steals the show. She plays Marilyn Monroe, who's just this enchantress that everybody inevitably falls in love with, which is you know sort of true to the story of Marilyn Monroe. But Michelle Williams' portrayal of Marilyn was just unreal. Mm. It, she she captured it so beautifully. I, I honestly couldn't wrap my mind around how 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 she managed to channel because I've seen videos and I've actually seen some of the movies that Marilyn played in and. The way that Michelle Williams managed to capture capture that spirit was just incredible. Speaking of people who have captured someone else's spirit, I recently sent you that that oh man that clip. Oh, of, or no, sorry, Josh sent it to dude, us. Dude, that made me so emotional. It was uh, a young actor playing Robin Williams. Yeah, this video went viral this week. Yeah, and uh, if you, it, I can't remember the the name of the YouTube channel, but if you if you Google Robin Williams screen test, or mm-hmm. if you YouTube search that on YouTube, it'll pop up. Um, as, as I understand it, that was just a screen test. That's all they filmed. But he's trying to get this made into a full-length film. It's and scary. He wants, and he wants to play. It's scary how good it is. Yeah. He, uh, when, I, when I was watching it, I was like, is this a deep fake? Like, That's what, what is, I thought. What is, like, for, well, first off, even if it is a deep fake, because it looks a lot like young yeah. Robin Williams, how is the acting so good? Like, yeah. How is this guy channeling Robin Williams so well? And at the end of it, I realized it was a screen test, and I was trying to find research to see if there was any more of it. And again... It's one of those things that maybe it will get made. I really hope it does. So search it on YouTube and maybe. So I, I've already I've already stated on this podcast that Robin Williams is my my all time favorite, and mm-hmm. the idea of somebody making a biopic 
scares me just because if you're going to tell his story, I, I have this, this deep insistence that it's told well. And just seeing that five-minute screen test, oh, yeah, I'm not sure I'm ready. Again, we, it might never, might never get made, but uh, it's definitely worth watching the, the few minutes of video that's on, online right now. Well, we talked about this in the last episode. If, if you, you can make a bad film that has a couple of great moments in, and for me, that's enough to justify watching it, even oh, yeah. if it turns out to be a bad film. Um, just watching that kid perform as Robin, as a young Robin Williams, if that was all I got, I'd, I'd, I'd probably be fine with it. Yeah. Even if, even if the whole turned out to be not worth it. Yeah. I mean, again, we'll, we'll, we'll see. I'm, I'm fingers crossed that this actually gets turned into a, uh, a feature-length I, film. I hope so. Yeah. I hope so. That was... If you would have told me prior to watching that little snip that they were going to make a, a Robin Williams biopic, I, I would have said, don't do it. Nobody else can play Robin Williams. Don't don't ruin his memory. Don't 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 touch that. I would rather see something not get made than see it made poorly. Yeah, for sure. Um, but I don't I don't know if I would have ever taken it to that at the word. Just don't do it. It's untouchable. I would have I, I would have had the attitude again. It's got to be good or, or stay away from it. But I don't know if I would ever say no one can ever touch this. I I, I mean my words anyway because after okay. watching that screen test, I I want to see it. Gotcha. I, I do see too. It. I want to see it yeah. too. I want to see it happen but um it was funny the, the the one of the troops going back to manchester by the sea we're following casey affleck's character one of the loops that if i got thrown through was i hadn't seen the movie but i knew that it was sad i knew it was about a tragedy and there's a tragedy that unfolds early in the movie mm-hmm. that casey affleck starts to deal with and you're like oh okay this is it. it's gonna be the aftermath of of i don't think it's uh, too much of a spoiler to, to reveal that one. So his, his father dies. Brother. Brother. Brother oh, dies. Oh, sorry, yeah, yeah. brother. It's, uh, yeah, his brother dies. And he has to deal with the funeral. Um, so that's an important part of telling the story because his brother's death is what drags him back to where this other tragedy had taken place. And he doesn't want to be there. So again, my... Ex- but none of us know why. Um, yeah, but when I'm watching the movie, I don't know that there's this other... Tra- tragic event that has taken place i thought oh his brother died that's the tragedy that's driving the rest right. of this movie so i kind of let my guard down a little bit and said oh right. the worst thing i'm gonna have to deal with is this guy lost his brother that's you know, not I just, that's not too bad yeah like i can get through that I'd, but that's it gets way worse <laughs> i just had this realization that i was i was about to talk about lucas hedges who's uh, the kid um the son to uh lee chandler's brother who just passed away mm-hmm. uh lucas hedges is in this movie that we're talking about manchester by the he's sea in, he's a few movies well he's in honey boy which we're going to mm-hmm. do next so um he's he's quite good in this one so essentially this is what happened lee chandler's brother passes away and basically names him as the uh guardian over lucas hedges character now mm-hmm. so he's being dragged back to manchester for by very very holistic reasons, you know, his, <laughs> by the sea. Um, and he doesn't want to be there. We don't exactly know why. And Lucas Hedges, he's, he's essentially come to Lucas, and I don't know Lucas's character's name, um, and, and, and told him, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take you out of here. I'm going to set you up in Boston. We're going to get you. you know, and and he's, a, he's a teenager. He's in yeah, high, school, high school. And he doesn't want to be dragged away from his life because his, his dad happened to pass away. He has a life. He has friends. He has girlfriends. Like he has all these, all these there's, things. That, there's a family boat that they want to keep. Yeah, yeah. For business. And he yeah. doesn't, he doesn't understand. So you kind of see the whole story unfold through his lens because he doesn't know. Yeah. So here's my perspective. Again, I'm watching this thinking the tragedy, the tragic part of this is over. Like we're, we're dealing with the death and I'm, re- I'm totally ready to be sad more, but I was trying to understand what is Casey Affleck's motivation 
for not being here? Why not just stay? I get it. You don't want yeah. to uproot your life. He doesn't want to uproot his life. What's what's the deal here? What do you have? Why can't you live in Manchester? And then, but his nephew chastises him with all sorts of things. You know, like you're, you're a janitor in Boston. Like you could mm-hmm. be a janitor anywhere. Yeah. He, why, why do you insist that you're going to drag me away from my life and drag me off to Boston when you could easily come here? There's a house that's paid for that was willed to you to to oversee until I'm an adult. Um, per diem for the, like, the yeah, next. Per diem, yeah, per diem. You're basically going to be taken care of. Why would you drag me out of here? This doesn't make any sense. But he doesn't know. And Casey Affleck's performance is really, really great. He's very stoic in the movie. He's constantly quiet when people antagonize and interrogate him. He doesn't say anything. He just kind of boils yeah. internally. And he obviously has fits of rage and anger because he he does not want to be in yeah. Manchester. It's funny because his I, I I've known people with pretty bad anger problems, and seeing the the outburst of anger, then the immediate realization that he he crossed the line, and then right back to the yeah I'm sorry, can we move forward on this blah blah, and it's like yeah man that was fantastic yeah. acting. I think he ended up winning best actor that year for this performance. And uh, I, I don't know. It's not. It's not surprising to me. He, he's he's quite. Uh, if I had to pick in this movie who I thought was the most exceptional, though, it'd probably be Michelle Williams. She Man. she had a couple of scenes that I just. I know, just gave me shivers. Yeah, I I to me it's the, that scene with that I just talked yeah. about, I talked about previously. That's the most standout scene to me. But the other performances, the nephew, uh, the brothers played by. Kyle, Kyle Chandler, Chandler which, which is a little confusing because the last it, name of the characters is Chandler, but his real name is Kyle Chandler. Yeah, and uh, he's not he's not in the movie quite as much, but there's flashbacks, and then yeah. you see him as uh, when he was alive, and he's fantastic. The other, I'm not sure if it's a brother or an uncle. The, oh yeah, yeah, friend, I think. Yeah, yeah. I mean, every performance in yeah. this movie was good. Yeah. Uh, if I had to pick, I, I would no. One of my favorite I, scenes is when Michelle Williams calls. Casey Affleck's character, Lee Chandler, and asks him permission to attend the funeral. Because this is his estranged wife. They've mm-hmm. been divorced for some time. We don't know why at this point. Yeah. We don't know all the circumstances surrounding their divorce. But it's obviously a, a severed relationship. And she calls very sheepishly to ask permission to go see her, her former husband's brother's funeral. Yeah. She wants to be there. And uh, they have this interchange where they go back and forth for a little bit. And it's mm-hmm. awkward and frustrating and sad. So, But you don't know why. It, it's funny because I, I say it's funny because a lot I've noticed that, but there's a scene. Obviously, later on we find out exactly what has happened. When I start started to find out, ah, oh, this is the real story. This is the real tragedy yeah. here. It's starting to unfold. It brought me way back to the scene at the hospital when they're just realized that their Kyle Chandler has died. Their brother, the brother has died, and he's dealing with the friend, and he says, "I need somebody to call." Um, his ex-wife. He doesn't just names her. Doesn't yeah. say my ex-wife. And the the friend says, "Oh yeah, don't worry. I'll I'll call her. I'll let her know." Didn't think anything of the moment. And then I realized later on after we find this out, oh, that's the reason you you couldn't even, you didn't even want to talk to your own ex-wife. Like you couldn't call her. You asked someone else to do it. Right. And uh, it's, again, small little thing in writing mm-hmm. that that goes a long way. Makes the movie more powerful. And yeah. and the film, like you said, it. It unravels and unfolds a little bit at a time, and you start to get pieces and pieces until you start to a picture starts to emerge of why it is Lee Chandler doesn't want to be a part of Manchester. He doesn't want to be here anymore. And the uh, there's there's the one scene that takes place in the police station where I'm not going to tell you the, the circumstances around it, but he decides that 
it would be better if he wasn't living and yeah. he attempts to kill him, but he fails and the police are able to stop him. That T- tell, tell them, tell the audience exactly so what happens. He, he, not the, not the circumstances, but he, he's, he's, he's following a police officer. He's leaving the, the, the station. They're walking him out and he's, he's surprised having this, having this moment where he's like, I'm just, I'm just walking out of here right now. He's surprised that he's not being like, arrested. How, how am I not being arrested? Like what's going on? Like, I, I don't want to walk out of here. And this is, I'm, I'm, yeah. Projecting a little bit what I think is going on in his head, mm-hmm. but the, he's, the cop is in front of him. He reaches for the cop's gun, pulls it out, puts it to his head, and pulls the trigger. But it was on safety. And then, as in the second that he takes a look at the gun to try to figure out why it didn't go off, they go tackle off, him. They tackle him. Yeah, like this wasn't the moment. The, the, the trigger. And he clicked. still he still doesn't get arrested because the the truth is that again you need to know the circumstances of why he's there in order to understand this and contextualize it perfectly. But the officers are doing this in an act, as an act of mercy. Like he's not somebody who has a violent intent against anybody in the room except himself. Mm-hmm. He is trying to escape tragedy. Yeah, he's trying to escape. Yeah, his own regret. Yeah, but uh, I don't want to say too much. That, that movie. No, like I one think of good I think ones, I think we're pretty much there. Yeah. Um, I did want to say there was another movie I was going to put on this list until I discovered that I saw it on Amazon Prime, but it's actually not a Prime movie that also stars Casey Affleck, and I wanted to give it a quick shout out. Uh, it's called Our Friend, and it stars Casey Affleck. Uh, Dakota Johnson and Jason Siegel, and uh, it's really good. Uh, I would recommend people check it out. It is a, it is the story of a husband and wife trying to tell their children that she has cancer and that she's not going to be with them anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's another sad film. But the name Our Friend is about Jason Siegel, their best friend, who spends basically sacrifices a couple of years of his life to be a part of their family to try to help them through this transition and. Uh, I don't want to say too much. Uh, that, that's not officially on the roster for this today's episode, but uh, if you have an opportunity, I believe it is still on Prime. Our friend, Casey Affleck, Dakota Johnson. Gotcha. Uh, she, so, she's so quite, on, quite a talented. It is on Prime. Well. It's just not a Prime original. It's just not a Prime original gotcha. movie. Okay. I thought it was, and I thought it was going to include it in this list, and I realized after the fact when I looked it up recently that it's not a Prime original. But it is a good movie. Worth, worth checking out. All right. Today's featured episode. I decided after last week's episode that I wanted to have a a main feature or a feature presentation and uh today's is is honey boy so a couple of random facts about this before we get into the the plot of this film well actually i'll I'll sew this in a little bit so this movie is about um somebody going to rehab because of the tumultuous relationship that they have with their father and trying to cope with alcoholism and uh, all sorts of other things it is actually a semi-autobiographical film about shia labeouf um Mm. who plays he plays his own father in the movie. Um, I don't know if you know this, but he actually wrote this in rehab and started shooting it two weeks after he left. Mm-hmm. Did you know that? Yeah. Uh, I happened to watch a actor's roundtable, totally unrelated, that Shia LaBeouf was on, and he brought up this movie. And uh, he wanted to play... It's, it's not, he's not actually playing his father. He's playing the character written inspired by his father it's not the actual the same it's man. it's not perfectly non-fiction but, it, but, it's, but it's, it's it's yeah it's a screenplay of a real thing mm-hmm. and uh he said he tricked his dad by i can't remember the actor's name off the top of my head but he said we're, we're trying to get you know i think you told daniel, me this daniel craig to play, i, I, I want to say you told me it was mel gibson mel, it is mel gibson okay it is mel gibson now that you said it i remember it he said we got you know we want mel gibson to play you yeah and hearing that his father went ahead and signed like to yeah. sign the release and he was there able to make the movie and Shia ended up playing him, not Mel Gibson. But um, the, the story, even though it is about Shia's in, as he's in uh, rehab, 
it, the, most of the story is told via flashbacks to when he was younger mm-hmm. and dealing with his father as a young child star. Or in this case, it's not exactly the, the story of him and Even Stevens in the movie, but Shia LaBeouf was an Even Stevens. Right. Um, There's a couple shout outs to the Even Stevens show that I noticed throughout the movie. Um, one was the outfit he wears when he gets the pie in the face. Yeah. Totally looks like Lewis from Steven. Um, well, you and I are children of the 90s, so we grew up watching yeah. Disney Channel, and, and I watched Even Stevens as, yeah. Stevens as a kid. And then, do you remember he goes to a baseball game with the Tom and his friend AJ? Uh-huh. Well, AJ is the real life character, uh, actor's name for his best friend from Even Stevens, uh, Schmidt. I don't remember that. A- well AJ enough. Troth was the actor's okay. name. But um, anyways, I, it was fun. It was just fun. A little bit of nostalgia watching. Like, it, it's weird seeing Shia LaBeouf as an adult because he's like. I watched even Stevens growing up. Yeah. Like, he's like, he's my age. What is like, well, yeah. of course, you know, I'm an adult yeah. now too, but it's just, it's super weird seeing someone like that. But I thought this movie did, did one thing very, very well. It showed, it did not tell like it mm-hmm. didn't, it didn't, it, it made no assumptions about the audience being, not being able to pick up on things. It, it assumed the audience was going to get everything it was saying. Yeah. The movie was telling. And, uh, it's funny that the very first scene that that it shows it's uh, Shia LaBeouf is is uh, I don't know, around twenty. It's not Shia LaBeouf. It's sorry. It's, uh, it's Lucas Hedges. Lucas, yeah, Lu- playing. What's what's the Otis? Otis. Otis is, is yeah. the character's name. So it's not. It's based on Shia, but the character's name is Otis. I'm mm-hmm. sorry if that's confusing. But the first like three minutes of the movie, there's no dialogue, and it's just setting up what's happening in the yeah. movie, and then he's on set. He's doing some sort of action sequence. They have them all harnessed in. You know. Uh, it looks like probably Transformers. Like that's the implication. I think is that this is a, a a scene that they're shooting from the movie Transformers. I think I don't think there's any real life parallels to it. I think they're it's just part of the screenplay. Screenplay was by uh, by Shai. Right, it was written there. Right. Um, but no dialogue. Just just showed you what was going on, and right. you you start to pick up on stuff. Even even throughout the movie, obviously there is dialogue in the movie, but they left so much unsaid and just shown. Yeah, and that's always something that I look to. I try to appreciate movies because it's very hard to. So easy. So basically, this story is about a child TV star who is being raised by his uh, ne'er do well father, who is, as the story goes, um, a man who can basically never get work because he's a sex offender, and he is being paid a per diem to be a part of his son's life and to be on, be allowed to be on set. So that he can, and, and, and you really don't have good feelings about who he is as a person because yeah. you get the sense that if his son was not successful, that this man would be AWOL. He wouldn't yeah. be around. Um, in fact, that's a, a major theme in the film is that this, this father is not really playing the role of a father. He's almost playing the role of like a, like a roadie. Yeah. yeah. Um, who's just following around this successful person and globbing onto their success. Mm-hmm. And you have in turn Otis's desire to, be accepted and loved by his father as any child would and feeling like his only attachment to his father is commercial is superficial. It's, it's a consequence of his own stardom and success. And there are times when he sort of lords that over his father mm-hmm. and says, let's just be honest with ourselves here. If, if, if you, you wouldn't love me, you wouldn't be around if I, you wouldn't have a job if it wasn't for me yeah. and you wouldn't be here if it wasn't for me. And, uh, his, his father's kind of an irate man who doesn't take kindly to those those kinds of insults, and uh, he's not a good man. Mm-mm. In fact, that's a segue into what I wanted to talk about this film. Um, those who know me know that I like to travel, and when I travel, I like to go to uh, other countries. 
And if people ask me why, what I like about traveling most, um, obviously it's nice to go different places, have all the food, see the beautiful scenery, um, you know, take time away from work, decompress. But my favorite thing is always contrast. Going to somewhere new gives you the contrast and the insight to see things differently. Mm -hmm. And that's what this movie kind of makes me think about is, I think to some extent, children inevitably don't know how to contextualize the success or, or failures of their parents until they have contrast. In other words, you might think that you had a bad father until you see a bad father. And this, this film for me was a showcasing of that possibility is this, this was a bad father that will give you the opportunity and the ability to appreciate a good father. Yeah. Um, it's, it's funny because I, I think the, the, the way the film was told was if you were to ask him how he felt about his father, he would say, I love him, but I hate things about him. Mm -hmm. And uh, toward, even towards the end of the movie. Yeah. No, he's, he's, he's in rehab because of the damage that his father did to him as a, as a child. And he, he, he can't handle it. He, can't, he doesn't know how to live his life because he was constantly berated and rejected by the person that he was supposed to be able to trust. Yeah. And now he's, now he's an alcoholic. No, one thing I really think is, is interesting and poetic about the film is you can make this argument, falsely I would suggest, that Shia LaBeouf is trying to vindicate himself in the story mm -hmm. that he's telling. That he's trying to make an excuse for his bad behavior. That we'd all seen the footage of this man being slammed onto a police hood and uh, being arrested for misbehavior. And you could, you could make the assessment that he's, he's trying to make an excuse. Hey, if you would have known my father, you'd understand why I'm like the way I am. Yeah. And, and yet I think that's the wrong read of the story. I think there's, there's something really special in not making an excuse, but having a reason. Yeah. There is, there's a technical difference between those two things. You don't have to justify your behavior based on what you've gone through. But boy, does it help to have the context to understand what, what would cause a person to be like that. That, that scene... There's, there's a scene that you kind of just talked about where he's angry. Uh, Lucas Hedges is. Mm -hmm. So this is the older Shia yeah. or Otis. And he's with this, this therapist, this coach, and he's very angry, you know, yelling, dealing with his, and he's, he's saying some of the things that you just said. And it reminded me of, don't worry, he won't get far on foot. Yeah. The moment where they all said, ah, there it yep. is. There's the source of your resentment. Yep. There's the excuse. Mm -hmm. There's the reason that you believe you, you have the right to be angry. Yeah, the right to be an a-hole. And the right to sabotage yourself for the rest of your life. Yeah. And that's really what it comes down to is you have to acknowledge that these external forces that act on each and every one of us that might give us an excuse or give us reason to continue to spiral downward, even if you're justified, all it will do is destroy you. Yeah. And this is an invitation to overcome, to be better, to, to take away those excuses. Mm -hmm. I feel like the... Uh the actor channeled his inner Matt Damon from Good Will Hunting too in some of those scenes, the the specifically the scenes where he's talking with uh, his his mentors at the facility he's staying at. Oh yeah, um, some some good scenes there. Uh, there was a the, the you're actor, talking you're talking about Lucas Hed, Lucas Hedges right? Yeah, as a, yeah, as a, as a, as a child, yeah. Um, there's the one instructor who is in the pool and they, mm -hmm. they do like pool classes and. Uh, Otis is, you know, he's kind of, through flat, various flashbacks, we've seen him kind of not participating, and he even asks him to participate, and as soon as he does, he starts having problems with it, like, this is dumb. Afterwards, that teacher comes he's, up to him. He's mocking him, 
And there's there's one point where I really like where the 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 teacher asks him, "Are you acting that's, right that's, now?" That comes a little bit after. Oh, okay. So he takes. So the teacher gives him some advice. Yeah. And it's funny because that scene that yeah. you mentioned is actually one of my favorite scenes. It's a good movie. scene. He, 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 he tells him to go out and just scream as loud as he can. Yeah. In the woods. Walk into the forest, yeah. Walk in the forest and just scream as loud as he can. Let everything out. And Otis, and he goes and he does it. <laughs> but my favorite scene is he goes in and comes to the teacher and says, hey, I just want to thank you for that. That advice it was really helpful. Thanks. And the teacher goes, I, I can't tell if you're being sincere yeah. or not. He goes, oh, I am. Yeah, sure. For sure. I'm being sincere. And the teacher goes, are you mocking me or are you being sincere? And he looks at him. He goes, both. And then leaves the room. <laughs> Oh, it's just, and there's a little bit more, a little bit of yeah. extended dialogue, but uh, I thought that was scene was, they didn't take the cheap, oh man, this this was the one moment that changed me. Yep, when he, going out and yelling into the woods, where he, he I'm, I'm a good now, I'm a, I'm a different person. He's yeah. not. He's still the same person. He di- he may have learned a little bit of a lesson, and he was also, you know, jabbing back at the, yeah. at the, the mentor. I thought that was a... Very realistic way to handle that scene, as opposed to the the cliche way that a lot of movies would have. What I like about the um, portrayal uh, in the screenplay of Shia LaBeouf as Otis, particularly as an adult, and going through some of the more embarrassing circumstances that he has, his public arrest, um, some of the vitriolic uh, uh, outbursts that he had publicly, um, was Lucas had he didn't shy away from showing the the most inglorious parts of his past mm-hmm. and. I never got the opportunity to see them side by side, but I think Lucas Hedges nailed it entirely on his portrayal of his arrest because when when I watched the movie Honey Boy and I saw that scene and he was spouting at the mouth about, you have no idea how good I am at what I do. I remembered that happening, seeing that video online somewhere of, of Shia's arrest and like the cadence and everything about it was almost entirely the same. Like I, I wanted to see them side by side, but anyway, I I came away from it with some admiration for Shia because here you are telling a story about the terrible father that you grew up with, and the the consequences it had on your own life and what it, what it did to you as a person, and you didn't shy away from the the very worst parts of your own existence. Mm-hmm. You had the courage to tell the story truthfully. Yeah. That hey, I did come from this. This is in part why I am the way I am, but. I am this. Like I did this. I, I I made a fool of myself. I I nearly destroyed myself because of the resentment I had towards my father. Yeah. And props to Shia for putting that into the screenplay and telling a real story. Telling the truth. Yeah. Props to Lucas for pulling delivering off that it. Role. Yeah. But also the kid. Uh, I looked up his name and it, I, if I've forgotten it. Um, he is really good. I actually like him quite a bit. But I'll look it up. One of the things that I liked is that first scene where we see Otis as a teenager played by Lucas. He has he he does his little. Noah, Noah Jupe is his name. Noah Jupe. And then it cuts to Noah Jupe as young Otis, and he's doing the same scene, and his mannerisms match Lucas's mannerisms so well. Um, and his performance throughout the movie, there was there's times where he's talking to his father, and the way he's cutting off his breath and moving his hands, you can tell he's like intimidated and scared. Yeah, man, it just... He's a courageous little kid, though. Trying to stand up to his dad when his dad has been abusive and, and been unkind to him right, relentlessly. And uh, his dad's not a good man. He's not a good person. Um, this is a man who can't get work uh, like a normal man would be able to. And as a consequence, his son has generously allowed him to be a part of his life. Uh, where he has no obligation to. But, he, but he's just like a little, he's just a little kid. He's just, he loves his dad. And he wants his dad to be a part of his life. And he wants his dad to be a dad. When... Uh when he has that moment where he's like, he tells his dad, like the only reason you're my man, like 
The only reason you're my manager is because I'm paying you. You won't yeah. even be around. And his, his dad has that moment where he's, he gets upset about it, but his response was, but I want you. Yeah. No, it's, <laughs> Sorry. It's, it's a great movie, and I honestly hope people check it out. Um, yeah. And it's one of those things, like, like I said, this, this for me, one of, the, one of the beauties of this film is that it gives me the opportunity to have an appreciation for just how great my dad was. You know, we, we all grow up, and our, our parents will inevitably affect us negatively. And if you're not careful, the only things that you will recognize are the things that you suffer from. But sometimes having a little bit of contrast and a little bit of opportunity to see somebody do it much more poorly gives you the ability to appreciate just how great you had it. And that's the gift that this film gave to me. So for that, yeah. I'm thankful for Shia to be able to tell a story like this. So I told you he, he was on that actor's round table. Again, yeah. I just happened to, to randomly watch that, not in connection with this. And uh, someone asked him about this movie. And he said, what, what was your, your biggest takeaway from this movie? And he said, if anything, it gave me sympathy for my dad. That's a beautiful thing. That's a beautiful thing because it's not easy. It's not easy to forgive the people that have hurt us. It's not easy to accept them as human. You know, that, that yeah. actually, I, I'm so glad you said that because that to me is, is the essence of the film is he sets his father up not just as a villain, but as a broken person. Yeah. And that that brokenness got passed generationally to him. Yep. And that now he had to contend with the brokenness that his father gave him. But he realized that his father was just a product of the brokenness that he inherited. Yep. And, and it was his responsibility to overcome. Yep. And because he goes through some of these same problems, some they're not the same problems, but they're the same types of things that someone goes through that his father did go through. And you could argue is what turned his father into a bad person. And he has this opportunity to say, First off, not only am I not going to let this turn me into a bad person, I'm going to overcome it. I'm going to look at my dad with some sympathy and say, yeah. hey, like, now that I've gone through some of this stuff. And, and that, is the, that is what art can give us. It can yeah. give us an opportunity to, to learn and to grow. Um, so we just went through 12 films from Amazon Originals. These are, uh, in my estimation, some of the best that they have to offer. There's plenty of others that are really great that we considered talking about, but... Uh, I don't want to overwhelm the audience with, I've been thinking about that. Like uh, we, we've been doing these a week apart and I can't watch six so, movies in a week very easily. So here's the thing. When we decided to do this podcast, you had, <laughs> Go seen, ahead and call you, me you out. had yeah, seen almost fine. all of these movies and yeah. I had seen very few of them. Right. And so the past couple weeks I've just been marathoning I know. Sad, sad movie after sad movie <laughs> and it's wrecking me. I can't, like I can handle one, one dark movie and like there's even movies that make a lot of people cry that I would say I could get through it yeah. without crying, but I would be emotional at the end of it going right from watching one of those movies straight into watching another one. No, that's that's yeah. cruel and unusual, man. That's well, and, and we kind of, and to kind of put a bow on it, we kind of kicked off this podcast. I am, I am so humbled and overwhelmed and thankful that people listen, but more so to be able to go watch the films. And I don't want to overwhelm people with so many opportunities to watch films that you have to pick and choose. Write some of these down. Take your time. Check out the movies. Yeah. Um, I'm going to give you a bit of a break after this one so you can sit down and, and watch a few of these. We're going to do some happy movies. <laughs> <laughs> we, we might have to do that. Or yeah. maybe, we'll, maybe we'll do TV. We haven't even done TV yet. That's a good, that's um, a good there's idea. There's lots of, lots of fun we'll stuff think of there. something. Um, but anyway, uh, if there's nothing else, let's sign off. Signing off. All right. Thanks for listening.